0: Recently, in my hearing, a question was asked of a candidate for the ministry, what is covenant theology? Now, that question implies that covenant theology may be a a uniform, easily identifiable, and monolithic phenomenon. And it it would be a gross oversimplification, I would suggest, to say that that was so. What I suspect that we shall find from this brief survey of the early stages of the development of covenant theology in the 16th century is, in fact, a diverse and a pluriform situation rather than the monolithic one implied by that question. Now, we're going to leave aside a consideration of the so-called covenantal theology in late medieval nominalism. For important reasons, I consider its connection with Reformed Covenant theology to have been overstressed. And our study will commence with the first clear articulation of Protestant thought on the Covenant in Zwingli's 67 Articles of 1523, and will terminate with the developed statement of the double covenant framework in Robert Rollock's Treatise on Effectual Calling of 1597. Between Zwingli and Rollock, between 1523 and 1597, I would suggest, lies the crucial phase of development that underlines the statements of the 17th century, including those of the Westminster Assembly. Now, there are two clearly discernible principal stages in this development between Zwingli and Rollock, together with one, short burst of intermediate thought which had and was to have profound significance for later ages. Now the first stage, what I'm calling the response to anabaptism, in which the stress throughout was on the one covenant of grace, the unity of the covenant of grace in all ages. And we'll begin by having a look at the man whom Heinrich Bullinger described as having given the concept of the covenant to Reformed theology. I refer, of course, to Zwingli. Now, Schrenk, writing back in 1923, argued that Zwingli took over the idea of the covenant from the Anabaptists. It was the Anabaptists who claimed to really introduce the concept into the forefront of thought. And Zwingli and others like him took the idea up and used it to defeat the Anabaptists at their own game. The Anabaptists, you'll be aware, claimed, or or shall I say stressed, the elements of discontinuity between Old and New Testaments. And they argued that because, in their view, the New Testament was radically distinct from the Old, Therefore, infants in the New Covenant age were not to receive the sacrament which they had done in the Old Testament. And Schrenk argued, the Reformed took this concept up, turned it on its head, in order to defeat the Anabaptists, who were the real originators of covenant thought. However, although this thesis has been widely accepted since, There have been voices raised against it. In particular, a Westminster graduate, Jack Cottrell, in his Princeton doctorate, Covenant and Baptism in the Theology of Huldrych Zwingli, pointed out that Zwingli's treatment of the Covenant antedated the Anabaptist controversy. He began to talk about the Covenant as early as July 1523 in the 67 Articles. Whereas it wasn't until the end of the following year, 1524, that he began to enter polemics against the Anabaptists, and indeed, he didn't use the covenant argument in defense of infant baptism against the Anabaptists until February 1526, in his reply to Hubmeier. In short, Cottrell argues that Zwingli's covenant writing antedated the Anabaptist controversy, rather than being a response to it. And this is borne out by Bullinger's own statement that it was Zwingli who gave the concept to the church after so many centuries of neglect. Now Zwingli didn't arrive at his understanding of the covenant overnight. There was development. There was progress in his thinking. Initially in the 67 articles, he started off by stressing the covenant promise the promise of God given in Christ's death. The covenant, he said, was founded by the death of Christ. Christ is the pledge of God's grace, an insistent theme in his later writings. It was a testamentary view of the covenant, the idea that through Christ's death an inheritance has been bestowed and promises have been fulfilled. It was a unilateral view of the covenant, the emphasis being upon God's initiative and grace. But there was no notion at this stage of covenant unity. Rather, the emphasis was on the elements of discontinuity. For Mark you, Zwingli was not arguing against the Anabaptists so much as against Rome in the 67 Articles. As I intimated a moment or two ago, his first mention of covenant unity was not until 1525 in his commentary on true and false religion. The New Testament, he argued, projects itself back into the Old Testament in in the form of promise. Now that's quite an important statement because it indicates that Zwingli's main basis for covenant unity was the history of salvation. It was a redemptive historical rather than abstract, abstract unity. But the first time covenant unity was stressed was the following year in his reply to Hubmeier, where he used covenant unity for the first time to defend the practice of infant baptism. There is one covenant, he maintained, in all ages. We, he said, are in the line of continuity with the Abrahamic covenant, renewed and ratified by Christ. And the following year, in his refutation of Anabaptist tricks, Zwingli went on to argue that because there is but one and the same covenant in all ages, therefore infants are to be baptized. Now, this was to become a dominant theme in his later thought. The covenant, as I indicated, is eternal, finds its unity not in the abstract eternal, but in the historical work of Christ, God incarnate, who is the focus of the promise and the basis of its fulfillment. Redemptive history, therefore, lies at the bottom on the, as the basis of covenant unity. The covenant we are in, Swingley argues, is the same as that made after the fall with Adam, The same as that which was renewed with Noah, with Abraham, and with David. There is but one church, one faith, and one covenant. Sinai he he regards as temporary rather than eternal. The Mosaic Covenant is therefore distinguished from the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant stands in unbroken continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant and is unilateral is unconditional and is permanent, whereas the mosaic is conditional and temporary. Now Zwingli had as well probably the most thoroughgoing doctrine of election of any of the reformers. It was central in his theology. In fact, in his famous sermon De Providentia Dei in, of 1530, Predestination is brought into close conjunction with providence after the manner of Aquinas. So there's an emphasis throughout his writings on the work of God, God's plan, God's purpose, at work in God's covenant. But Christology is not eclipsed either. In fact, the well-known Zwingli scholar Gottfried Locker wrote a book once, back in the 50s, I think it was, Ringley's theology in the light of his Christology. Christ's blood confirms the Abrahamic covenant. Christ's blood founds the new covenant. Indeed, election itself is discussed in the context of who Christ is and what he has done. Election, Christology, and covenant are welded together with an organic and vital unity. Hence, the covenant is testamental. Hence, Christ's death is the pledge, is the guarantee that the promise has been obtained and bestowed. And of course, this is made clear to us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So much for Zwingli. What about his successor, Bullinger? Well, Bullinger, it was, who in 1534 wrote the first full-scale treatment of the covenant concerning the one and eternal testament or covenant of God. Again, it was written to counteract Anabaptistic teaching. Now, most scholars have thought that Bullinger has simply reproduced Zwingli's ideas, nothing much original with him, they say more as an administrator, a consolidator, rather than an innovator. But in fact, this is not quite fair to Bullinger, as we shall see. His views are quite distinct. For a start, he regards the covenant as a pact, as a conditional, mutual, bilateral agreement. A departure, of course, from Zwingli. Conditions, he maintains, are placed on both parties in the pact of friendship. Yes, yes, the covenant is established out of grace, but the pattern throughout is one of mutuality. He regards the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as a paraphrase, his word, a paraphrase of the covenant conditions. Infant baptism is, of course, a condition of the covenant, as crucial as circumcision was in the Old Testament. Consequently, the Anabaptists are neglecting the condition of the covenant. However, if we obey the conditions, faith and obedience, which includes infant baptism, then we may expect to receive God's promise. Yes, it's true, Christ has fulfilled the covenant. But, remember, the promise of God is only part of the covenant. The covenant is defined as a compound of promise and obligation, and the promise itself is conditional, dependent for its bestowal on the fulfilment of the conditions on our part. Now, later in his career, 1549 to 51, Bullinger preached a series of sermons, which became known and were published as his Decades. Here, the covenant was considered as part of the law, it was conditional and bilateral. The accent is on our obligations to meet the conditions which God lays down. He describes the covenant as a league, as a confederacy. The Mosaic covenant is, in fact, in basic unity and continuity with the Abrahamic New Covenants, he teaches. The bilateral nature of the covenant at Sinai is part of the very structure of the one covenant of grace. So, the covenant of grace has two parts. Firstly, what God promises to his confederates, and secondly, what man must do. It's a mutual pact, a confederation. Now, in parallel with this idea, Bullinger discusses the law before he goes on to discuss grace. And similarly, the preaching of the law precedes the preaching of the gospel. So there's an incipient preparationist order in line with Bullinger's subsuming of covenant under the heading of law. In connection with that, it's significant to note that before 1549, which was when Zurich and Geneva reached an accord on the sacraments, the consensus tigurinus, Before that date, election is conspicuous in Bullinger's theology by its absence. Bullinger has little or nothing to say about predestination or about election. Now, combined with his view of the covenant as a bilateral pact with mutual conditions imposed, Bullinger significantly has nothing to say at this stage about assurance Okay, then. Was Bullinger simply a rubber stamp of Zwingli? Evidently not. With Zwingli, election lies at the heart of his theology. With Bullinger, it's hardly there at all. With Zwingli, the Abrahamic covenant is in basic discontinuity from the Mosaic covenant. Or, should I put it the other way around, Sinai is distanced from the one covenant of grace. With Bullinger, the Mosaic covenant is in basic continuity with the Abrahamic and new covenants. And with Zwingli, the covenant is seen as unilateral, as testamentary, as fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection, and as basically unconditional. Yes, Zwingli does talk about conditions, but the conditions of the covenant are basically all promises which God makes. Bullinger, on the other hand, has a bilateral view of the covenant, a conditional formulation. Now, Bullinger's views were mirrored in other writers at the time. Tyndale, for example, another English exile, writing in 1534 on the prologue to the Gospel of Matthew and his prologue to the book of Genesis, in both instances, writes of the covenant in very crude, I may say, even clumsily conditional terms. God offers mercy on the condition that we mend our living. Here's a direct quotation. God has made a covenant with us to be merciful to us if we will be merciful to one another. Our part in the covenant is to obey God's law in imitation of Christ. If we keep all his laws, he says, after the example of Christ, then God has bound himself to us to keep and make good all the mercies promised in Christ. And he even goes so far as to say that when we hear God's will and do not do it, then God withdraws his promise. Now, Tyndale, one would imagine, would have hardly want wished to have undermined the gratuitous character of redemption. His stress, of course in many of his writings, is on justification by faith alone. But here is a very clumsy and crude uh, view of the covenant. A threat, perhaps, to the gratuitous character of redemption. Now, there are others in this early early stage who adopted similar ideas. I haven't really time to list them all. Wolfgang Capito was one. He worked in Strass- Martin Butzer's Strasbourg and wrote as early as 1528 a commentary on Hosea in which he regarded the covenant again in bilateral terms. Two parties conditions and terms laid down for acceptance. Cabotau had been trained in nominalism, a pupil of Geiler von Kaisersberg, who in turn had been a, a disciple of the famous late medieval nominalist Gabriel Biel. And Cabotau, according to his recent biographer James M. Kittelson, was a rigorous predestinarian he combined a rigorous doctrine of predestination with a very bilateral view of the covenant, defined as law. This commentary, as I say, was published in 1528. And at the same time, we'll see this in a moment, Wolfgang Musculus was in Strasbourg as Bütze's secretary. And inevitably reading this volume, he himself would be influenced by some of its teaching. Now to summarize the early stage of covenant theology, I've only sketched a very broad general terms, the main features. First, the earliest Reformed covenant theology was largely, though not exclusively, occasioned, but not initiated, by the Anabaptist denial of infant baptism through stressing elements of discontinuity between Old and New Testaments. Largely, not exclusively, because, as we saw, Zwingli began his treatment of the covenant before the controversy arose. It was occasioned, not initiated. Secondly, the stress throughout is on the unity of the covenant of grace in all ages, in opposition to the Anabaptists. Therefore, it is maintained, infants in the New Testament are to receive the sacrament as in the old. The focal point of this unity is not abstract, but is redemptive historical, in Bullinger, in Zwingli, in Ekelampard, in others. His death and resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ, lie central as a unifying feature of the covenant. Third, there is no reference No reference at this time to a covenant before the fall. There is only one covenant that is maintained, the covenant of grace, post-lapsaria. Fourth, the covenant is closely related to the sacraments, especially, of course, baptism, but also to the Lord's Supper as well. And fifthly, thought on the covenant is not monolithic. We've seen the radical distinction between Zwingli and Bullinger, both had followers. I haven't said anything about Calvin, but I would put Calvin into the same category with Butzer as Zwingli. True, there are to- there is talk in his sermons on Deuteronomy of the covenant as conditional. But I believe that that has to be seen in the light of his clear distinction in his institutes between legal and evangelical promises. A legal promise, he says, is a promise God gives on condition of something within us. An evangelical promise is a promise made without condition which God has bound himself to perform and to fulfill. And the sermons on Deuteronomy are, of course, expounding a predominance of legal rather than evangelical promises. And they are, in in, in second place, sermons in which Calvin is concerned to impress ethical obligations upon his hearers. So much for the first, what I would term, the first major period of thought on on the Covenant in the general period under consideration. Second, I indicated that there was a short burst between our two major developments of thought on the Covenant, which was to have considerable significance at a later (laughs) stage. I already made reference to Wolfgang Musculus, secretary to Butzer in Strasbourg from 1527 to 31, where he would have read Capito's commentary on Hosea of 1528. Later, via Augsburg, He ended up in Bern from 1549 to his death in 1563. And during this time, he published a number of works, including his Loci, which was a systematic statement of his theology, drawn largely from lectures and published in 1560. Now, Musculus's significance lies precisely in this, that he talks of two covenants, He talks of a general covenant which God made with the entire creation, not only with men but with animals, a covenant which was temporal rather than eternal, which was in duration as long as the earth lasts. Now this covenant sprang from his exegesis of Genesis 8 and 9, the covenant with Noah, of course, which had previously been seen as part of the one covenant of grace, But now Musculus, of course, begins to distinguish it from the one eternal covenant of grace. Second is, of course, the special covenant which God makes with the elect. This is eternal rather than temporal, but at the same time it's a bargain, it's a pact. It has two points, God's promise on the one hand and the confederate's promise on the other. It's a compound, in other words, of promise and obligation. And because the covenant is conditional, assurance of salvation is to be derived from marks of election, from sanctification, through self-examination. Because, of course, we can't be sure of our salvation until we are certain that we have fulfilled the conditions which God requires of us. Consequently, we have to examine ourselves to understand whether those conditions have been met within us. And it's here that Musculus makes virtually his entire weight in his doctrine of insurance. Then there's John Knox. Knox stresses the unity of the covenant to such an extent that all virtually all diversity between old and new is eclipsed. So much so, that the events of the Old Testament are directly paralleled by events now. The Gentiles now are bound to the same terms as ancient Israel. In other words, banish idolatry from the land. Indeed, England in the 1550s is to be identified in principal terms with Israel under Moses. The historical Christocentric character of Revelation is, of course, blurred by this. Now, why did Knox go to such an extreme? Well, of course, he had a very real political motivation for doing so. Motivation against the Queen's Mary and Elizabeth in England, and the Regent Mary in Scotland. And two, there was a background in in Scottish history of what was known as banding or bonding, where local dignitaries would form mutual associations for self-protection in the absence of strong central control. And Knox himself formed such a band or bond uh, with several other noblemen in 1556 for protection— 1556, sometime in the 1550s—for protection against the Regent Mary. In 1554, then, with this strong political motivation, he claims that only the magistrate has the right to overthrow idolatrous rulers, similar to Calvin's idea that the lesser magistrates have a right to overthrow tyrants. But by 1558, not only the magistrate, but also the people have not just the right, but the duty to slay these rulers. Deuteronomy 13, remember, man, woman, and child in a city of idolatrous practice are to be wiped out. And believe it or not, theoretically at least, and I think we can say at least, we can say only, really, with Knox, he never carried it in practice, as maybe Oliver Cromwell may have done later. But theoretically, that applies to England and Scotland in the 1550s, he maintains. Out with idolatry, the rulers have violated the covenant. Medieval natural law theories had already drawn attention to such ideas, but when a ruler violates his contract with his subjects, the subjects are free for civil disobedience. As you might expect, with an extension from this political context into the more religious and soteriological, the covenant of grace for Knox is conditional. It's only, in effect, if we obey its terms. God's promise and wrath are virtually reactions to our obedience and idolatry. Quote, obedience given to God's precepts is the cause why God shows his mercy upon us. Now, of course, Knox's ideas were to have momentous consequences. You only have to think of the Covenanters in Scotland who, the next century, took arms against the king. You have to think of its influence on political thought. Scottish Presbyterianism, one of, wasn't it Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, reared in Scottish Presbyterianism. Its influence on theology, too be a matter for considerable exploration. Now, finally, our second major stage in the development of covenant theology in the 16th century, the dual, what I call the dual covenant theology, where you have the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Now, for historical emergence of the dual covenants, I would refer you to a THM thesis written here a few years back by Sherman Isbell, The Origin of the Covenant of Works, I believe it's entitled. He sketches this out in some detail. Asinus, Heidelberg theologian, was the first in Reformed theology to refer the pre-fall situation to a covenantal framework. In his Summa Theologiae, of 1561, he, descri- he talks about a covenant of creation, a covenant of nature. The law, he says, contains a covenant of nature which was begun with man in creation. It requires perfect obedience. It promises eternal life if we obey and threatens eternal punishment if we disobey. And in parallel with this, the covenant of grace is for a sinus bilateral, conditional, a mutual pact. His Heidelberg Heidelberg colleague, Caspar O'Levian, in the second edition of his commentary on Romans of 1584, commenting on the passage in chapter 5 on Adam and the sin in Adam, says that if anyone wishes to explain this as a pact, I will not disagree. So evidently there were people around in 1584 who were thinking of the creation situation as a covenant, Olevian was not prepared at that stage outrightly to do so, but he did not disagree with them. His Heidelberg Heidelberg colleague, Caspar Olevian, in the second edition of his commentary on Romans of 1584, commenting on the passage in chapter 5 on Adam and the sin in Adam, says that if anyone wishes to explain this as a pact, I will not disagree. So, evidently, there were people around in 1584 who were thinking of the creation situation as a covenant. Olavian was not prepared at that stage outrightly to do so, but he did not disagree with them. But the following year, 1585, he did describe it in such terms in his work concerning the substance of the, co- of the free covenant between God and the elect. Israel, he says, was bound to perfect obedience because of creation and because of covenant. The covenant of creation, he says, was overturned by Satan. He describes it as the first covenant, the covenant of creation. And the covenant of, a covenant of nature, he maintains, is made by God with the non-elect, evidently now. God testifying to them partly by natural law, the law of nature written on their minds, and partly by his law written on the two tables of stone. Now the same year, Dudley Fenner, Puritan, in his work Sacra Theologia, used the term covenant of works, the first to do so. The German, Johannes Piscator, 1589, followed suit. Amandus Polanus, 1590, uh, Junius, Dutch theologian in 1594, his Dutch colleague Gomarus, later to be a hostile opponent of Arminius, same year. And then finally, Robert Rollock, who taught theology in Edinburgh in his Treatise on Effectual Calling of 1597. Now, Rollock teaches a developed dual covenant theology. Indeed, we could almost say an ultra-developed dual covenant theology. Let me summarize it. First, He says, the whole word of God is to be described and to be defined in terms of covenant. God says nothing to us apart from covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant, he maintains, is a promise under a condition. And that applies right across the board, as we shall see. The covenant is twofold. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace, the covenant of works. Well, he says it's founded in the nature of man, created holy and pure, righteous and upright, blameless, and in the law of God, which was given to him directly by God. Adam, he maintains, was promised eternal life on condition of good works, good works which came from his own natural strength, not from faith in Christ. In fact, the ground of the covenant of works is not Christ, nor the grace of God, but the nature of man, man as he is endowed with the knowledge of the law. Now, this covenant of works was repeated with Israel at Sinai. There's an identity between the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Israel. And all men today are liable to one or other of these two covenants. Outside Christ, all men are liable to the covenant of works. But when freed from the covenant of works, they are not to be lawless or libertine, but forthwith they are admitted to the covenant of grace. In other words, the covenant of grace is virtually a new law. Freed from the covenant of works, we do not become lawless or libertine, but we are admitted to the covenant of grace and in parallel with this the preaching of the covenant of works precedes the preaching of the covenant of grace Rollock lays down a definite order firstly you preach the covenant of works second there's sorrow for sin thirdly when sorrow for sin is evident mark that when sorrow for sin is evident then you preach the covenant of grace. So you don't preach the covenant of grace until there's an evidence of sorrow for sin effected by the preaching of the law in the covenant of works. It's preparationism. Now, Christ, as man, was under the covenant of works. He obeyed the law for us. He suffered its curse on our behalf. He fulfilled the covenant of works condition precisely because he was a man and precisely because he lived for us. So there's a direct connection then between covenant of works and the atonement, covenant of works and the work of Christ. And then the covenant of grace is, of course, a conditional promise in, terms of his, in, in line with his generic description of covenant, a promise under a certain condition. It is bilateral. It is contractual. Because there are promises given on condition. There are certain terms laid down which if we obey we'll receive the stipulated promise. It's a pact, it's a bilateral, it's a contract. Now, apart from people like Olavian, also perhaps Polanus, all these exponents of the covenant, of the dual covenant theology see the covenant of grace in such terms. Now, Covenant of Works, of course, increasingly swept the board after 1600, but there were still some who held to only one Covenant. Now for a theological analysis of this development. First, it should be evident that the creation creation administration or creation situation under the dual-covenant theology is described principally in terms of law, as something which is contractual. And this creates a presumptive expectation that the covenant of grace should be described in such terms too, as a conditional promise, terms laid down, promises given under under certain conditions. As I already indicated, in general, this forced assurance to be based upon sanctification, and, the pers- and ultimately upon the perception of subjective inner attitudes. Because we couldn't, if the if the promise is conditional, how can you and I have assurance until we're certain that we have fulfilled the terms, that there is sanctification within us, that there is love, hope, and faith and so on, present. The development, then, I would suggest, opened the door for pietism, for subjectivism, and for legalism, and, in short, for a tendency to undermine assurance. It's significant in this regard that there was a man very soon after Rollock wrote, trained in Geneva by none other than Theodore Bezer. Who set about reordering the decrees, placing grace before election, so that God elects those whom he foresees will believe and persevere. And this man, in reordering the decrees, adopted a view of the covenant which was thoroughly conditional, the promise is given on condition of our faith and perseverance. His name? Arminius moreover earlier there was one covenant as we saw the covenant of grace essentially the same in substance in all ages now there's a first covenant the covenant of works which consequently qualifies and controls the covenant of grace if the first is a contract the second tends to be described as a contract and bilateral and therefore the covenant of grace is in danger of becoming a subset of the covenant of works in short again there's a change in the general cast of thought on the covenant from the redemptive historical of the of the 1520s and 30s to the legal and the contractual there's a change too from the from the objective and the theocentric to the subjective and the anthropocentric. A change of interest from the Historia Salutis to the Ordo Salutis, from the accomplishment of salvation to its application and appropriation within us. Now, why did all this occur? Well, in the first place, the reformers and took over ideas of natural law from the medieval scholastics and ultimately from Roman law. The law of nature, they claimed, was implanted by God in man at creation. Zwingli talks about it. All the reformers, to a greater or lesser extent, do. And this natural law is identified with the Decalogue and, of course, is still relevant now. (laughs) Zwingli describes law as the eternal will of God so that the unity of grace in all ages is paralleled by the unity of law in all ages. And of all reformers, Melanchthon, heavily influenced by Cicero, gave natural law a firm position in Protestantism. Now, we mentioned Asinus a few minutes ago as the first to talk about the creation situation as being covenantal. And Asinus, of course, had been a disciple of Melanchthon. And in talking about natural law creation and covenant. What he was doing was taking natural law into a covenantal framework so that creation, so that the conditions, should I say, were created for the creation to be seen in legal and covenantal terms. Factors present then in reform theology in the start helped towards this development. Plus, the idea of natural law taken from Roman law via medieval scholasticism. In the second place, I would suggest, too, that there was a coalescence with the methodology of Peter Ramus. Now, Ramus and Ramism was a kind of pedagogical tool, stressing the idea that any art or science, any subject, could could be subject to diagrammatic analysis for easy comprehension. What you do on the left-hand side of the page, you divide your subject into two principal parts. And then across to the right-hand side of the page, those two parts are subdivided increasingly, four, eight, 16 subdivisions. A process of dichotomous subdivision so that you could look at the chart and you could see how, uh, how all the various elements of a subject interrelated. It was a ready-made tool for teaching in opposition to the complicated paraphernalia of the Aristotelianism, which ruled the roost in the academic curricula of the day. Applied to theology, of course, as it very frequently was at the end of the 16th century, you came to the conclusion when you reached the covenant that the covenant is twofold, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Now, virtually all the early Covenant Works theologians were Ramists. In Walter J. Ong's Ramus Talon Directory, he lists Fenner, his mentor Cartwright, Piscator, and Polanus, all early Covenant Works theologians, as openly avowed Ramists who wrote in defense of Ramism in the controversies which raged around his teaching at the time. Additionally, Olavian, Rollock, and Unius all show clear evidence of Ramist influence. Now, where were the main centres of Ramism? Germany. Germany was the area where well, the vast majority of Ramist works were published at the end of the 16th and early 17th centuries, including Heidelberg. Cambridge, after Sir Philip Sidney's momentous European tour of the early 1570s. Uh, Asinus, of course, taught at Heidelberg, and there both Unius and Gomarus were his pupils. Unius later became a colleague, and they, of course, returned to the Netherlands afterwards. Asinus's work on the Heidelberg Catechism was taught by Rollock at Edinburgh. It was translated and read widely in England. Cambridge was also a Ramist hotbed, and there at Cambridge, Fenner, Cartwright, and later Perkins and Ames, all Covenant of Works theologians, were trained in Ramist method. While Fenner and Cartwright, in exile on the continent, had contact both with Heidelberg and with Herborn, where Olavian had gone after Lutheranism had regained control of the city. Now I'm not suggesting that there's causality. I'm not suggesting that Mahmast method, methodology caused the development of the covenant of works, but only that there was a confluence, a coalescence. Ramism provided the impetus which triggered the development of an idea which may have come sooner or later in any case. Lastly, in the last few minutes, some concluding observations. Historically, what is covenant theology? That was the question I mentioned at the beginning. As we've seen, it was not in the 16th century a monolithic phenomenon. There was both historical development and theological diversity. In fact, some leading theologians chose to ignore, the, virtually ignore the covenant altogether. You don't find much about the covenant, for example, in Beza. Most, virtually all, could not be termed covenant theologians in the sense that they used the covenant to structure and control their theology. Only perhaps Bullinger, Olavian, and certainly Rollock might come into this category, I would suggest. Up to 1597 then, reformed theology and covenant theology are not identical. Now for some theological comment john murray professor john murray called for the recasting of covenant theology as you know he was critical of the terminology covenant of works on the grounds that it obscures the grace present in the creation order he argues strongly against the notion of meritorious works which of course at least is not the underlying implication of the promise of reward to Adam mentioned by Rollock for works done in natural strength apart from Christ. He's also critical, too, of some developments, the idea, for instance, that the covenant of works was repeated at Sinai. And, of course, we may add that that idea has the corollary that all men are under the covenant of works now, and, if so, that we tend to follow the preparationist order which we outlined a few minutes ago. Moreover, I would suggest here that there are are dangers in talking of conditions. God promises A, B, and C if we do X, Y, and Z. The the danger is the undermining of the gratuitous character of redemption. There is a danger that attention will be diverted from the finished work of Christ, And uh, to the encouragement of introspection and pietism, to a situation where we worship godliness more than God, to a concentration on the Ordo Salutis at the expense of the Historia Salutis, on the subjective and Anthropocentric at the expense of the objective and Theocentric, And it's important to remember here that the Westminster Assembly only talks of conditions in isolated reference. I think the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 32. But by and large, the documents steer clear of this kind of talk which had been very prevalent. Now you're of course aware that there have been attacks on the Covenant of Works from neo-Orthodox circles. Bart, Burkauer, Holmes, Ralston III in his book John Calvin Versus the Westminster Confession. The title shows that some simply want to throw the Westminster Confession out of the window. But you'll often meet the argument, grace is prior to law. Not law prior to grace, grace prior to law. But this, I would suggest, can be a threat to the atonement as a satisfaction of divine justice. The great merit of the covenant of works formulation was that the work of Christ was integrated with creation, that Christ obeys the broken law. He suffers its curse for us. We should be on guard, therefore, against attempts to empty the significance of the atonement. There is danger of traveling down blind alleys on both sides. Both, then, may represent false abstractions. Tertullian, argued that Marcion's principal work was to separate law and gospel. Law and grace, I would suggest, are entirely compatible in their own place, not as competitive, but as complementary. The question of priority, I would suggest, is a blind alley. Grace is constitutive of our relationship with God and law regulative. There is only one way of salvation at all times and in all places brought into a relationship with God by grace and sustained in that relationship by grace. Our relationship with him is regulated by law. Having said to Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. God goes on to say, walk before me and be blameless or in the words of Exodus 20 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage a relationship begun established and maintained by grace and then you shall have no other gods before me thank you very much